Well, last week, Pastor Dave finished our series in the book of Galatians, and now we jump back into the book of Isaiah. We'll spend the next two Sundays here in Isaiah, in the opposite testament of where we just were. And I'm going to invite you uh, right now to go ahead and open up to the book of Isaiah. You can do that in your personal Bible if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, There should be a pew Bible right there in front of you, and you should be able to find it on page 567, 567 of your pew Bible. And as you're turning there, I want to refresh you just a little bit on what's going on in the book of Isaiah. Well, who was Isaiah the prophet? Isaiah was a man who was called by God to deliver God's message to the Israelites who were living in the southern kingdom of Judah, and this was around the 8th century B.C. For greater context, we should remember that around 600, 700 years before Isaiah wrote, that was when the Jewish people were brought out of slavery in Egypt. They were brought into the promised land of Canaan, and through the course of time, the nation transitioned to being ruled by kings. And you may remember, there was first King Saul, and then there was King David, and then there was King Solomon. And after King Solomon, the kingdom splits into two. You have the northern kingdom of Israel with the capital Samaria, and then you have the southern kingdom of Judah with the capital Jerusalem. Well, it's this southern kingdom to whom Isaiah speaks in his writing. Isaiah chapter 2, I'd invite you to turn there if you're not there already. I'm going to plan to read from verse 1 all the way through the end of the chapter, and then we'll dive into trying to understand what Isaiah has here for us. Isaiah chapter 2, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the Eastland of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to which their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, each one is brought low, 
do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty and against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up against all the oaks of Bashan, and against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver, their idols of gold, which they've made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Well, if you could boil down and summarize Isaiah chapter 2, I think the main idea would be something like this. Hope in God crucifies our pride and cultivates humility. Hope in God alone crucifies our pride and cultivates humility. Now Isaiah, as we've seen so far in this series of sermons, is in the business of sort of turning our perspectives inside out. And he does it again here. If you think about where we people today tend to find our incentive for living, often it's in the present, isn't it? The future, when we do think about it, can often feel threatening to us because we picture a day where what we presently have might be taken away. And the thought is often scary. Most often, where do we look when we want to feel most comfortable, most secure? Well, more often than not, it's the present. We look to the familiar. We we look to what we know. The future feels frightening because what we so deeply rely on emotionally in the present, we think it won't be there. Yes, we trust in God, but more than we realize, our sense of stability is not in God alone, but holding on to the world as it is now. Just ask yourself, 
how do I establish my sense of self-worth? More often than we realize, the list sounds something like this. What are my achievements to date? What do I own presently? How do I look right now? Who are my friends in this very moment? How do others perceive me today? And y'all, when we live like this, the Lord alone is not exalted in our hearts as He ought to be. And what happens is we make room in our hearts for idols. Now, what's an idol? Well, we see in this passage, it seems to be these clear wooden images that people were bowing down to, but idols are more subtle than that in our day. And an idol, an idol is anything besides God Himself that I need to be who I am. An idol is anything I need to not feel worthless and insecure right now. Here's the tough part, is that idols are not formed from inherently bad things. Oftentimes, we've taken something good that God has given, and out of that good thing or aspect of God's good creation, we then have this response of an inordinate desire. Good things become idols when in the depths of our heart we need them to establish ourselves. We need them to establish our significance. My heart can make even preparation to preach God's Word an idol when it becomes about me doing a good job in needing your approval rather than coming to build you up with a word from the Lord. We can do it with anything. As one theologian put it, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. In other words, we are, apart from God's grace, continuously turning God's good things into ultimate things and preferring them over and above God Himself. Well, how do we know that this is happening in our hearts? Well, our hearts are exposed when we respond to worldly loss with anger and sulking, bitterness, hopelessness. It's because we've grounded our happiness in in something other than God Himself and God alone. So the solution to this heart problem that we have is not to improve the performance of our idols. The solution is for God to become all that we need. This is something that Isaiah the prophet knows. He knows the way that we think. He spoke to a people almost 3,000 years ago who had basically the same problems 
in their hearts that we have in our hearts today. The problems are not all that different. The remedy, then, is the same today. For the Lord to be all that we need, finding our all in God alone. And, and, and the key isn't just simply in believing the right things. It's also desiring the right things. Valuing, loving, cherishing the right things. And, and so the prophet is inviting us this morning into his very value system. We're, we're invited in this passage to value not the world as it is, but the world as it's going to become. He wants to persuade us to live today in light of that future. He's holding our faces in the palm of His hands and looking us in the eyes and tenderly, patiently, and yet sternly and lovingly telling us, do not put your self-worth in self-exaltation. It's not worth it. It will only disappoint you. Locate your present happiness in the reality of the future good that God has promised you. And if you'll do that, you can face anything. If you'll do that, you will not be devastated when the idols of human pride are trashed as they will be. God alone will be your possession now and forevermore. In short, Isaiah is telling us to cultivate humility and crucify our pride by hoping in God alone. Now, chapter 2 begins the body of the book of Isaiah. Sermons past in this series were walking through just this sort of extended introduction to the book, and now we've reached the body of the book. And all of chapter 2 is sort of this poetic sermon of sorts from Isaiah on the transforming power of hope and humility. Hope and humility. So section 1, I want us to see, verses 1 through 5, is this call to hope in God. So let's look at Isaiah's future vision of God's plan to transform his people. If you remember from chapter 1, from sermons past, the picture of where the people of Israel are presently, it was a bleak one. Massive failures, massive corruption. So this section comes as this stark contrast to what we've seen thus far. Isaiah prophesies, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. 
Many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he would teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Because out of Zion shall go forth the law. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. They shall decide, he shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. The, the prophet Isaiah looks out to a future last day and he sees the worship of the one true and living God as exalted, God being esteemed, looked up to, sought after, respected, while all the other rival religions are humbled into nothing. In the latter days, Isaiah sees people will abandon their sought-after religions and they will gladly give themselves to the Lord. They will gladly recognize the church of Jesus Christ as the world's center of worship. You'll notice this striking picture even that Isaiah gives of this anti-gravitational pull of nations flowing like water up the hill. Up the hill to worship God in Zion. The promise of God is that there would be a worldwide miracle as the nations, far from being forced, are freely and gladly urging each other as they come to worship God. They come to learn His ways. Well, when will this day come? Well, it was Jesus Himself who said in John chapter 12, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all peoples to myself. Well, he is the one through whom God is going to perform this miracle. It began at Pentecost. It continues right now through local churches and world missions it will finally fully be realized in the latter days at the return of Jesus. Now, we are told today that the exclusivity of the gospel is an offense to the world. It's old-fashioned. It's closed-minded. Even told that it's repressive. We're told that we should admit all religions as valid ways to God. But, but what we can see in this passage, and, and really in so many others in the Scriptures, is, is a wonderful picture and notion about how this exclusive gospel, the exclusivity of the gospel, is actually inclusive there's an inclusivity of this exclusive gospel. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, look at the picture again. You have all nations, all peoples, from every tribe and tongue. They don't stop being who they are when they come to God. They remain who they are 
And yet, there's this multicultural, worldwide body of worshipers that come to the one true and living God. What has changed is that they all find their greatest joy in God according to His Word. They love God's ways. They love God's Word. They love being under the rule and authority of King Jesus. The whole world will rally around Jesus by this irresistible force of His dying love. Everyone who will turn from their sins and trust in Jesus, they will submit themselves to King Jesus. Well, the question is, who will deny people that choice? See, I would actually turn the argument on its head. The the people who would say that this exclusive gospel is repressive Well, to deny these glad people their choice to worship the one true and living God, that's what's repressive. This is a picture of freedom. The other, any other picture, is a picture of slavery. Look at how desirable this king is. He gave himself for us. He paid the price to make us one. He, Jesus, was treated like a sinner so that we can be treated as sons. He, with His authority, didn't lord it over us, but He laid His life down with His authority. Nobody took it from Him. And He did that for us. His dying love allures His people into a glad allegiance of Him alone. And look at the transformation that this causes, because when the gospel finally triumphs, there will not even be an imagination or an inclination to war or to kill, to dominate through violence. Y'all, the day will come when there will no longer be terrorism. There will no longer be political struggles. There will no longer be the need for military budgets. No more slander or deceit. No more widows and orphans who are left behind. No more cancer. No more surprising, sad news. Jesus will be king. He will settle disputes with a perfectly satisfying justice and mercy. Well, what does the transforming power of that hope have to do with us now? Well, it's a hope that frees us to humility. Verse 3, you see the people are so enamored, so entrenched in love for their God that they call out freely to one another. They're they're free to to prioritize the good of one another. They're, They're not insecure if they sound silly. 
they call out gladly to one another, let's go. Let's go and worship the Lord. Let's go to the house of the Lord. Let's worship Him. He's worthy. There's no more space in their hearts for insecurity or self-reliance. They're there to worship God freely. So this future picture of hope can actually have a present transformative effect on our lives today. We are free today as God's people to live in this reality. That's why Isaiah invites us, verse 5, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in light of this reality now. Hoping in God alone, it crucifies our pride and it cultivates a humility in our hearts. Section 2, we see in Isaiah's word to us a call to humble ourselves. A call to humble ourselves. Now Isaiah, he's going to pause this tape that he has rolling on history, and he's going to rewind it way back and press play on the present. And he's going to shine a light on the present heart desires of Israel. Our present heart desires. And it's not going to be pretty. Isaiah shines the light and shows inside the human heart the human workings of pride, of of hubris. And he identifies it as the primary impediment to us giving glory to God alone. He's going to see it in three places, pride among God's people, pride in the world, and pride among the idols. First, pride among God's people, verses 6 through 9. The key word, I think, in this section here, as you look through, you see full there in verse 6. And then in verses 7 and 8, filled repeated three times. Isaiah looks out, he sees the people of God, and they are full. They are full of worldly wisdom. They are filled with money and power and filled with idols. Filled with everything except the Spirit of God. When God's people fill their lives with worldly ideas and values and things, it's because they feel empty with them. God is no longer satisfying in the depths of their hearts. And so Isaiah looks out and assesses his own generation of God's people in a way that, quite frankly, by the end of the section, takes our breath away. Verse 9, man is humbled, each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Well, what is he praying for? Well, what Isaiah is saying is that if we fill ourselves with anything other than God, we are not enriched, we're disgraded, we're, we're, we're cheapened, we're, we're brought low. And and there comes a point in time 
when a given generation has become so filled with various forms of pride, of worldliness, so empty of a sense of God and His glory alone and the forgiveness that He offers, that that generation, forgiveness becomes unthinkable. And so God moves on. That's what Isaiah sees here. The people, God has offered forgiveness, and yet they stubbornly turn. They don't want it. They run off in the opposite direction. So the first thing these people need is to be emptied of all of their false fullness. False things that they think will bring them delight. They need to be restored to God by His unmerited grace. Second section, Isaiah sees pride in the world. Not just God's people, but in the world at large. Verses 10 through 19, notice the wording, against all and against every. You're going to see that 10 different times in the section. 10 different times Isaiah is going to use this um, against all, against every uh, language to, to cover everything in the world. He's wanting to press home that everything in the world that exalts itself against God will be brought low when His kingdom comes. And he's going to say twice through this section, God alone will be exalted in that day. Now, you might be wondering, one, why so much on human pride? Why so hard on it? Two, why does God insist on being exalted alone? Why? Is, is he just kind of this insecure megalomaniac? He, he can't stand to see other people happy, successful. No. It defies some of our human categories here, but God Himself insists on being exalted because God's glory entails both His own happiness as well as our own happiness. That's what we love about the true God. His glory is actually our joy. Now, now, we know that no individual, not even the whole world, can rob God of getting the glory that is due His name. That's not what's at stake here. His Word tells us that He's high above all nations, that His glory is above the heavens. You and I are not a threat to the glory of God. Our problem, though, is that we think that God's glory and our joy 
do not lie together in the depths of his heart. We think that we have to contend with God to find what truly fulfills us. That way of thinking is what the Bible calls unbelief. Our problem is that we can have such a low view of God that that we don't realize that His passion for His glory, His passion for our joy is one and the same. That deep purpose is what this day of reckoning is all about. When we will forever be happy by delighting in God's glory alone. Human fulfillment is union with God. One theologian put it like this. God is glorified not only by His glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only merely saw it. His glory is then received with the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world in order that He might communicate and the creatures receive His glory. So Isaiah is saying that what's wrong with the world here? Strip away all the surface level obvious problems. But our deepest disorder is that the whole human race arrogantly perceives the triumph of God's glory over us as a threat. When in fact the triumph of His glory over us is another word for heaven, another word for eternal joy for His people. That's why God has set aside a day to destroy with a terrible finality every proud barrier to the only true joy that exists for the human race. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Isaiah is saying that the worst thing that could happen to us is not the loss of our retirement funds. The worst thing that could happen to us is not the loss of our health. It's not the loss of face. It's not the loss of our reputation. The worst that could happen to us is a loss in the delight of the glory of God alone. And the best thing that could happen to us is to be awakened to His glory, our union with Him as our joy. Even if we need to be humbled to experience it. Third part, pride among the idols. Last section, pride among the idols. The key here is that these idols are made of valuable material, silver, gold. We see them being thrown like trash 
to the moles and to the bats, unclean animals. What's behind it all is the foolishness of human pride. Human pride is the root that bears fruit in people assembling an idol-filled lifestyle. Why? Well, because idolatry promises often what we crave. A feeling of control. A sense of status. The desire for acceptance and people looking up to us. Idols are often precious. See here, silver, gold, fine, valuable things. But the problem is that as we turn our gaze to them and trust in them instead of God alone, we become like them. Dumb. Lifeless. Less than human. J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings captures this reality, I think, so well. You don't have to read all of the books. You could just watch the movies. But you know that the bad guys are the ones who are fighting for the ring. And the one ring means power, self-glorification, control. And everyone who puts this golden ring on their finger begins to change into something weirdly, strangely subhuman. They become so enamored with it that they lose sight of all the true beauty around them and they're fixated on the ring or what they think the ring can give them. So the whole saga is about Middle Earth needing to be saved. And for Middle Earth to be saved, the ring must be thrown into the fires of Mount Doom to be destroyed forever. Why? Well, because it's only the willingness to part with the ring that will ultimately bring true and lasting life. Well, y'all, the key to life, this side of glory, it's not what you gain. For those who have trusted in Jesus, gain is already promised. Gain is already secure. Gain is already laid up in heaven for us. So the question becomes, since we have such a great gain in God, what are we willing to part with? What are we willing to lose? What are we willing to give up? Like the ring, what must we throw away so that we can live the life that God has called us to live before Him? Paul wrote, For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain 
Christ. Christ is our gain. What do you need to count as rubbish that your heart has been holding on to? What false promises? What tendencies to exalt yourself? What man-made trinkets and toys do you need to, like the people in the book of Isaiah, throw to the bats and the moles so that your heart can be made whole in the hope of God alone? Well, let us together fix our hope on God alone so that our pride would be put to death, that we would be remade into a humble, holy, and happy people. Let's pray. God, our prayer is that you would do that in our hearts. You would by your Spirit fix our gaze and our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We would find our hope in Him alone and that we would humble ourselves before You. God, that our pride would be put to death and that our boast would be in Jesus Christ alone. We pray in His name. Amen.